NJ from the future here. I was seriously unwell when I recorded this episode, so my voice sounds like crap. Sorry about that. I had hoped to properly kick the bug before I sat down to record, but I started running out of time. So you got me at about 75%, and you'll just have to deal with me sounding like I'm going through puberty all over again. Thankfully, I am on the mend, so the next episode will sound better. In other news, I want to give a quick shout out to my latest patron, Rosie Morgan Penny. Thank you so much for the support. It genuinely means the world to me. And also, thanks to Frank Oliver Neefsey for the birthday coffees over at Buy Me a Coffee. It was a truly wonderful surprise. Also, I'd hoped to announce this with the jingle, but that's still in production, and I couldn't wait because I'm really excited to announce that ACMQ is now a proud member of the Podvoice Network. Yes, this does mean that you may be subjected to ads in the future, but we will be launching a new Patreon tier really soon, which will offer ad-free content. However, I encourage you to check out some of the other Podvoice-affiliated podcasts and YouTube channels for some great, great content, and also support our sponsors, as they really do help keep the lights on here at ACMQ. I'll drop a link to the Podvoice website down in the show notes. But enough housekeeping. Let's dive into today's episode. A Crime Most Queer is an LGBTQ true crime podcast based in Johannesburg, South Africa, intended for adult audiences and may contain graphic or disturbing content, including detailed descriptions of violence, physical or sexual assault, injuries to victims, and foul language. If you feel this may trigger you at all, please reconsider listening. If you need to talk to someone, please see our show notes for the contact numbers of crisis helplines around South Africa. Welcome to Crime Most Queer. I'm NJ Hawkeby. Today's episode was written by our new writer, Corin Lotter. Those of you who follow ACMQ on social media will have already met Corin, as she is the genius behind our social media presence since I dropped off Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I contributed a bit to the script because I can never seem to resist putting in my two cents, which is why I needed to get off Facebook and away from the coin sections in the first place, but Corin definitely deserves the credit for this story. But I'd love to hear your feedback. Join me on Discord and share your thoughts. Also, if you have a story that you want to contribute, do get in touch for more info on how to go about it. This case deals with substance dependency, murder, obviously, and we explore whether the police failed the victim or society failed the perpetrators. If you are struggling with substance dependency, you will find the contact details for the Substance Dependency Helpline in the show notes, or you can reach out to me personally on Discord. Now, let's get into it. The Sunday papers were still buzzing with the stories surrounding South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius, who shot and killed his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp, exactly two months before, on Valentine's Day, when he allegedly mistook her for an intruder. On April the 14th, 2013, it was a mild autumn day in Norwood, Johannesburg. There were 261 days left in the year, but for Professor Karl Mischke, it would be his last day alive. The following morning, Carl's housekeeper, whose name was kept out of the papers to protect her privacy, but we will call her Pindy, arrived at work at around 10am, as usual. She let herself in, as usual. She put down her things and changed into her work attire, as usual. She probably made a cup of coffee. This was a typical Monday for Pindy. 
but all that was about to change. As she walked up the passage to the master bedroom, she had no idea what awaited her. Entering the room, she knew something was amiss. The professor should have been at work, but he was still in bed. She called out to him, but got no response. Then, as she approached the bed, she saw it, and her chest tightened. Carl was face down on the bed, his body covered with a duvet, and a pillow covered his head. But from beneath the coverings, the blood-soaked bedclothes left no doubt that something terrible had happened here. The scream that burst forth from her chest, the scream that pierced the air, was blood-curdling. Once again, covering this case, I'm made painfully aware of how local publications almost never tell us about the victims. We get to know a bit about the offenders. Well, quite a lot, actually. Their entire lives usually get put on display at their trials. And we invariably get vividly graphic descriptions of the actual crime. Maybe they feel it's a waste of time or space to interview friends and relatives and give readers some insight into the life that was so violently taken. But gory details... Now those sell papers. Meet Karl Mishka, victim number nine. I think I would have liked Karl. He looked serious, but not stuffy. He had tattoos and dogs and seemed to enjoy life with a wide circle of friends. He was obviously very proud of his home and had a friend help him decorate it with a kind of nautical theme. But let's get into the facts we know. Carl was born on November the 29th, 1965. The hits playing on the popular Springbok radio, the radio station of the time, were Elvis, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Tom Jones and Murray Campbell. Adam Faith, a British teen idol singer of the day, cancelled his tour of South Africa in protest of the South African government forbidding mixed audiences at concerts. On the political front, 27-year-old schoolteacher John Harris became the only white person to be executed for crimes committed in resistance to apartheid. When he was hanged for the 1964 bombing of a whites-only platform of Johannesburg Park Station, which killed 77-year-old Ethel Reese and injured 23 others. Meanwhile, Rhodes University in Grahamstown became the first university in South Africa to install a computer, which was a pretty big deal, considering he only got television in South Africa in 1976, because... As Dr. Albert Herzog said during his tenure as Minister of Posts and Telecommunications, South Africa would have to import films showing race mixing, and advertising would make Africans dissatisfied with their lot. It was also the year that the bilingual poet and political dissident Ingrid Jonker walked down onto the beach at Three Anchor Bay in Cape Town and out into the sea to commit suicide by drowning, which later President Nelson Mandela would suggest was an extreme protest against apartheid and a nation that refused to hear her. Carl completed his schooling at a prestigious Afrikaans school in Johannesburg, Rush School Linden, matriculating in 1983. Remember, this was during apartheid, so the school was all white and Afrikaans medium, like many other schools in South Africa. Even in the early 80s, however, the writing was on the wall. The stranglehold that the white nationalist government had had on the people of South Africa was weakening. Bombs were exploding across the country and the government was attacking liberation force bases and facilities in neighbouring countries like Angola. On August the 20th, 1983, 
the United Democratic Front was launched at the Rockland Civic Center in Cape Town. It was a broad coalition of anti-apartheid organizations that opposed the government's constitutional reform proposals. On the other side of town, the National Party was trying to drum up support for a new constitution that would continue to exclude the black majority while allowing some representation of colored and Indians and Africans. Carl grew up during this time. He was a good student and after school he went to the University of the Witwatersrand and obtained his BA and Bachelor of Laws or LLB degrees in these turbulent twilight years of apartheid. He was awarded a German Academic Exchange Service scholarship to further his studies in Germany in 1989, and he completed his Master of Laws or LLM degree in German labor law at the Ruprechts Karls Universität in Heidelberg in 1991. That same year, he returned to South Africa, and in 1992, joined the Department of Mercantile Law at the University of South Africa, lecturing in labor law and contract law. During this time, Carl completed his doctoral thesis on using strategies and techniques of literary theory on the text of labor court decisions in South Africa, Germany, and the United Kingdom. He left UNISA in 1998 and joined the Resolve Group, a human resources and labor relations consulting firm in Johannesburg, as a labor consultant. Until in 2003, he went into private practice, while also serving as a part-time senior commissioner of the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation, and Arbitration. Carl was a prolific writer, who between 2007 and 2013 had over 40 articles published in Contemporary Labor Law, or CCL, a bi-monthly journal for, as explained on their website, industrial relations practitioners, attorneys, union officials, academics, human resource managers, NGOs, and all those who require authoritative, regular, and concise updates on South Africa's dynamic labor law. He also contributed chapters for six books, including some of the benchmark textbooks on South African labor law. By the time of his death, Carl had become a contributing editor for the CCL and the consulting editor for LexisNexis's IR network, an online labor law resource site. Carl was appointed a professor of law at the University of Johannesburg on January 1, 2013, where he lectured labor law to LLM students. Professor Nicholas Smith, whom Carl had replaced at UJ when she became dean of the Faculty of Law at Northwest University, wrote of him in a referee's report. Quote, Dr. Mishka's subject knowledge is impressive. I hold this opinion not only from our discussions, but also having regard to his writings. He is certainly one of the most up-to-date researchers in our field as he published daily and weekly updates on the IR network, whose customers are mostly non-lawyers, but managers who have to implement the law every day, as well as articles in the Contemporary Labor Law Journal, which is mostly utilized by attorneys and academics. End quote. Although Carl was employed for only a short while by the University of Johannesburg, he made many important contributions to the Faculty of Law. He taught the master's students in labor law who reported that they found him to be a dynamic lecturer. Among the final posts on his blog, posted ahead of his Thursday evening lecture, he remarked on how much he was looking forward to the class and how awesome, quote-unquote, he found his students. Carl was regularly active on social media and an avid blogger. On the now-defunct Google+, the day before his death, he posted, Right now, being posed challenges by people. I wish they wouldn't. Further down his timeline was a sniper meme that read, don't run, 
You'll just die tired. Meanwhile, his blog, which has since disappeared from Blogspot, was called The Small Blue Gates of Departures and contained, quote, the fictionalized accounts of meeting, then falling in love with the young guy in Johannesburg, end quote. He writes, The affair left me more confused than ever before. I tried throughout to do the right thing, the moral thing, but this did not seem to be enough. As I start writing this, I have no idea how it ends. He was, of course, referring to his lover, Craig Robert Thomas, a young man, 20 years his junior. But who was Craig Thomas? Before we get into this, let's discuss a quirk of queer relationships. Specifically, gay relationships. Exceptionally large age gaps between consenting adult men. Oscar Wilde tried to explain this phenomenon during his testimony at his trial for gross indecency in the United Kingdom in 1895. He said, There is nothing unnatural about it. It is intellectual, and it repeatedly exists between an elder and a younger man, when the elder man has intellect, and the younger man has all the joy, hope, and glamour of life before him. That it should be so, the world does not understand. By the way, the gross indecency Oscar Wilde was accused of wasn't waving his willy in public, or porking in a park. That would have been the crime of buggery. At that time, homosexuality was a criminal offence in England, and his crime was simply that details of his affair with the son of a British nobleman were made public. Lord Alfred Douglas, a young British poet, aged just 21, was 16 years Wilde's junior. As Wilde alluded to in his speech, one major misunderstanding about queer culture, one that persists even to this day, is a misunderstanding of male-to-male attraction between men of different ages. In many ways, it is crazy to expect queer people to act like their straight counterparts when it comes to relationships. When, of course, queer relationships are, by their very definition, different. Some may even say queer. And many gay people arrive at these relationships with a whole different set of baggage. One theory, which kind of makes sense to me, is that statistically, people who identify as queer have been through significantly more trauma than their straight counterparts. As South African satirist Peter Dirk Ace once said, quote, It's much easier to be black than to be gay. At least black kids don't have to tell their parents. End quote. So the build-up of baggage and damage for queer kids can take place on the playground or in the workplace or with family or friends. And this has drastic knock-on effects for queer relationship building. Science tells us that trauma is often carried with us for life and can lead to complicated repercussions when it comes to sexual attraction. One resultant effect is that gay men are far more likely to fetishize body image and form deep sexual attraction to certain types of men, such as an insistence on dating particularly masculine or feminine or older or younger men, and they are likely to carry those image obsessions with them throughout their lives. I, for one, can attest to this. Personally, I prefer younger guys. The last guy I dated was born the year 
after I finished school. Although that relationship taught me that I am getting way too old for that shit. But I'm no psychologist. I'm just going by my own observations and subjective experiences. Nobody really knows what goes on behind closed doors. And who can really tell which of the many hurts we've endured over the years have caused the worst harm? But I digress. Meet Craig Thomas, Method Number One. I refer to Craig as Method Number One because Craig Thomas didn't act alone. He had a partner in crime, literally, in the form of Method Number Two, Jacques Terreblanche. However, Jacques, based on reports, is mind-numbingly dull. In the overarching plot of our story, he was barely a featured extra. In fact, based on what I've been able to find out about Jacques, the most interesting thing about him was his crystal psychosis. And I lived with someone who suffered from crystal psychosis for almost a year. Interesting is not a word I generally associate with that particular mental state. If you don't know what crystal psychosis is, stick around. We'll get to that later on. We'll get to Jacques later on too. But for now, back to Craig. Unfortunately, not having access to the court records, we'd had to rely almost exclusively on the creative reporting of the South African media. And unlike the court records, they don't really help us much in figuring out what made Craig tick. We know that he was 29 years old in 2013, putting his date of birth somewhere in late 1983 or early 84. We know that he was from Brackpan, east of Johannesburg, and that he worked as a paramedic at one time. We also know, because this was sensationalistic enough to make the papers, that he had a substance dependency specifically took a cheap, low-grade form of crystal methamphetamine. We also know that Carl invited Craig to move in with him into his Norwood home, and that Carl paid for Craig to go into rehab to deal with his meth addiction. Clearly rehab didn't work for Craig, I'll get to this in a bit, and some reports indicate that Craig would steal things from Carl's home to fund his substance use. Another thing that is unclear is whether Craig was actually living with Carl at the time of the murder, because Craig couldn't just come and go as he pleased. Carl had to let Craig and Jacques in on the day of the murder, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get into what the press were quick to label the Gauteng gay murders. This is one of those complicated nightmare scenarios with many moving parts. But to truly grasp where the collective heads of the Gauteng queer community were at the start of the 20-teens, you need some background. On April the 14th, 2013, Karl Mischke became the ninth in a string of brutal murders of gay men in and around the Johannesburg area, starting in 2010. Nine middle-class gay men all over the age of 30 violently murdered in their own homes. At the time, police confirmed that Carl's death would be investigated alongside those of the other eight victims. But they were careful to stop short of uttering the phrase, serial killer. Something I discovered with this case is that in numerology, the number nine represents completion, as it's the last of the single-digit numbers. As such, to quote artist Franz Mori, it symbolically represents a culmination of wisdom and experience and buzzes with the energy of both endings and new beginnings. Now, whether you believe in numerology or not, 
and for the record, I don't. Culmination was exactly what the death of Karl Mishka, victim number nine, brought about. With his death, this series of homicides, the Gauteng serial killer murders, as the press initially was calling it, a claim the cops at first vehemently denied, then later partially conceded, before ultimately walking it back again, came to an end. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. These weren't just numbers in a series. These were real people, valuable, valued lives, callously snuffed out, senselessly, in the one place that should always feel safe. Their own homes. Okay, be with me here. There are many victims and many rabbit holes to scurry down in telling the story. These men were not just victims. So let's get to know them a little. Who they were and what the fuck brought about their deaths before we get back to Professor Karl Mishka. It's funny how things always seem much clearer in the rearview mirror. I guess when you're living in a time where gay men are being murdered in their own homes on the regular, it's easy to slip into the thinking of serial murder. The gay press, both locally and internationally, certainly were. Whenever the news broke of another dead gay guy, the word serial was almost invariably bandied about, with gusto. It seemed pretty fucking obvious in the moment. Wait. There's something else. Okay, kids, gather around, let Daddy tell you a story. Once upon a time, when all the old people were young, like 1999, there were two guys in Cape Town. They came up with an idea for a website called Gaydar. Then the two guys moved to London and got Gaydar off the ground from the spare room of their flat, and it exploded worldwide. It was followed by sites like Manhunt and Doosnit and a whole bunch of others with names that would probably freak out the straits. Then Facebook and Twitter and all that happened, while at the same time, smartphones got smarter. Yeah, there was a time before iPhone, and in the beginning, they weren't that smart. But by 2010, we had things like Grinder and Jacked and even Gaydar Manhunter jumping on the app bandwagon, although the app stores made sure that they pretty much sucked, according to users at least, because dick pics weren't allowed. For the record, they still aren't. But some got wise and allowed unrestricted versions of the apps to be downloaded from their websites. Well, for Android at least. Personally, I'm allergic to iPhones, so I wouldn't know about iOS. So yeah, Gator, Cape Town, 1999. That all laid the groundwork for how you get laid in 2022. Shit was wild back in the old days. Okay, story time's over, back to the case. Sadly, even though Grindr was a thing in 2013, dating app safety was still a couple of years off. Actually, if I'm honest, the shit that went down in Joburg in those three years probably made things a fuckload safer for you now. Look, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the cases were actually linked. Hooking up became immensely easier, and you didn't have to brave Desperation Hour of Bronx, Risque, or Ramp Divas, those are gay clubs if you don't know, or risk getting caught by the cops at any number of the cruising spots around the country, where bunking in cars behind trees and in public toilets was a thing. Vulnerable men were now hooking up with guys on Grinder from the safety and the privacy of their living rooms, where they didn't have to worry about the stigma attached to being queer, despite discrimination being illegal in South Africa. Minds, after all, change slower than laws. But men were dying. And now we get to it. I'm about to throw a shit ton of names dates and locations at you, and it may get a bit hectic and confusing, so check out the gallery channel on Discord for the infographic published in the press, and a map plotting out the approximate locations 
of each murder in the order they happened. It'll help you follow along if you're able to put a face to the who and a place to the where. The first murder to make the papers was Jim Cathels, found murdered in his home in Berea, Johannesburg, in December 2010. This was followed by Oscar O'Hara, Simpiwe Selby Nklapo, and Barney van Heerden. Then the Star newspaper reported that it had uncovered the murder of another gay man that may have been linked to the first four. Like the other victims, Manolas Veludas was found in his home in Greenside, bound and murdered. But his murder happened much earlier in the year, in April 2010. Following Barney van Heerden's murder in September 2011, in his Orange Grove home, only a few streets away from where Carl would be found a few years later, Jason Vassenaar died in December 2011, and Rulof Senegal on February 26, 2012, and then nothing until April 14, 2013, when Professor Karl Mishka became the ninth and final victim, the last in a long line. Mixed messages, gay panic in both meanings of the term, speculating media, and sloppy policing were just some of the obstacles that had to be put up with. Added to this, the fact that many of the victims' families were too ashamed to talk about their queer loved ones, even more than 10 years into the new millennium, definitely made things tricky. The stories in the media were purely factual. Well, maybe not factual, in the true sense of the word, but definitely clinical. Dates, times, and plenty of gory details. As for the people involved, the victims, there was shamefully little about their lives, their loves, and the loss their deaths would inflict on their loved ones, the community, and the world at large. Of course there were accusations by queer organisations across the country of anti-gay prejudice and the police, but the cops didn't see these murders, at first at least, as linked cases. The gay media, locally and internationally, fed on the gay serial killer narrative and never really reported anything substantial. As time passed, there were a few arrests and some convictions. The man arrested for Minotas Veludas' death didn't match the DNA profile that the police found, and in the case of Cathels, the suspects fled home to Zimbabwe. At the time, police said that they knew where they were and would bring them back to stand trial. But nada. Crickets. But let's not simply gloss over the lives of those who went before. Let's take a deeper look into these murders, and the people taken from the world as best we can, from what little information we have. So, in order of when they occurred, we start with Manolas Veludas, a major exponent of Greek dance in South Africa, and the first victim was found dead in his home in Greenside, Johannesburg, in April 2010. He'd been tied up and bludgeoned to death. A laptop computer was the only thing missing. The victim's niece, Evita Velodis, provided the police with CCTV footage of her uncle with an unknown man on the night of the murder, but investigating officers lost the footage. According to QueerTea.com, quote, two details stick out in Velodis' murder. The fact that he was killed in a very different way from the other four men, and the fact that the police botched his investigation with stunning incompetence. End quote. The next victim was 36-year-old Jim Cathels in December 2010, in Berea. It is said that three young Zimbabwean suspects fled home across the border 
to avoid being arrested for his murder. According to an article in City Press, quote, three Zimbabwean suspects fled home to avoid arrest in the murder of Cathals in Berea. It appears they, meaning gay couples, hook up online, become casual sex acquaintances, offer a threesome or bring friends over, but their victims are overpowered, bound with shoelaces or a cell phone charger cord. End quote. Later on, the article continues, quote, Afterwards, their homes are robbed of particular items, laptops, cell phones, cameras, all of which could have provided clues about online hookups or sex. End quote. And on the topic of Zimbabweans, let us not forget the vile pronouncements of their former president, Robert Mugabe, who said, quote, When I say gays are worse than dogs and pigs, I really mean it, because pigs don't do unnatural things. Let not our parliament ever entertain that the unnatural must be made natural. I cannot appreciate that a whole parliament can decide that Robert Mugabe and Joseph Masika can get married. I don't think the mission of human beings is to do unnatural things. End quote. In May 2011, Reno Oscar O'Hara, age 33, was house-sitting for a friend, the author Ivan Vladislavic, in the middle-class suburb of Kensington in Johannesburg, when he was bound and strangled by an unknown assailant or assailants. His body was discovered a few days later when the author returned home from the UK. On his blog, online friend Fulm Pella paid tribute to Oscar, saying, quote, This is very sad and heartbreaking for me, as the last Facebook chat I had with Oscar. He planned to come and hopefully meet me. He often told me how much he loved my articles, and teased me that I'm homophobic because of all the articles I write about gay men are negative. Rest in peace, my friend. End quote. He then added, quote, Guys, be careful about people you connect with on these gay dating sites, or any site for that matter. The internet can be a dangerous place too. Meet in a public place before you invite a stranger into your home. This could save your life. End quote. Three men were seen at the home where Oscar O'Hara was murdered in Kensington. To my knowledge, nobody has been arrested. In August 2011, a 47-year-old property owner from Northcliffe, overlooking the western side of Joburg, who apparently could not be named but, for whatever reason, fitted into this group, was murdered. Perhaps it was merely due to his being gay, or possibly the modus operandi was similar to the others, or maybe there was some other factor that never made it into the papers. But whatever the reason, it's sad that the likely vibrant, productive life of a man just two years older than I am now is reduced to the moniker of unnamed landlord. Simpiwe Selbian Klapo, age 36, was killed on September the 11th, 2011, in Cliptown Soweto. The difference with this murder was that Simpiwe's murderer, or murderers, poured acid over his lifeless body. Mklantla Misamango was identified as a suspect by Simpiwe's cousin, Trevor Denibe, who had been introduced to him the day of his cousin's murder. Mklantla's cousin, Pumlani Misamango, had already been arrested and sentenced for housebreaking and robbery for breaking into Simpiwe's house on the night of the murder but it put all the blame for the murder on Tlantla when he was arrested. The two cousins obviously thought Simpiwe was an easy target, and they showed their disdain for him, not only by brutally murdering him, but also by covering him in acid. On a Facebook tribute page, his friend Tereso Masala posted, quote, Wow, thank you again that I had a beautiful life, and an amazing friendship we had, awesome moments that we shared. I still hear the sound of your contagious laughter, 
that has never left my heart, Mokhotzi. I miss you so much, Mokhotzi, that sometimes I just feel or kind of expect you to come. I miss our time together in the studio. Sometimes when I listen to our songs, I wish you could speak, but come to my senses that I can only appreciate what is here and not search for what I know I will not get. Thank you so much. I know you are watching over me. Miss you dearly. Rest in peace and rise in eternal glory. End quote. I can find reports that the men were charged and appeared in court, but no reports of sentence or even the outcome of the trial, if there was one, ever made the papers. In mid-September 2011, 39-year-old Barney van Heerden was found bound and strangled in his Orange Grove home. Police believe Barney may have known his attackers, as half-full glasses of wine were found on the kitchen table. His head was wrapped in duct tape and bruised from the metal pipe used to beat him, and Barney suffocated after a planned sex party turned into a brutal robbery. This was the evidence heard by the South Gauteng High Court sitting at Palm Ridge Magistrates Court on Monday, October the 7th, 2013, on day one of the trial of three men accused of murdering him. In this case, there were three attackers, a friend and part-time lover, Maxwell Nyati, and his associates, Motokozizi and Lovu, and Temba Maseko. Lovu and Maseko were found guilty of murder after Maxwell admitted to the murder early on, turned state witness, and agreed to testify against his co-accused. Maxwell Nyati was sentenced to 20 years with the possibility of parole after 16. At the time of his death, Bonnie was studying for his Master of Philosophy degree at the Sustainability Institute. His dissertation topic was an exploration of the South African financial sector's response to sustainable development. On the website of the Sustainability Institute, his friend, Candace Kelly, paid tribute to Barney. Quote, I studied with Barney during my BPhil in 2007. He was an incredibly open person and we had very deep conversations very quickly. That meant a lot to me. I loved his wry sense of humour and his deep concern and care for the world around him. He was openly gay and I learned a lot about myself and my own prejudices from speaking to him, especially about being comfortable with who you are and not giving a hoot what other people think. I looked forward to our early morning and tea time chats on the stoop outside the institute. I'm still deeply shocked about the horrible way in which he died. Barney, I hope that you're looking down on the outpouring of grief that is happening right now and know just how much you positively impacted the people whose lives you touched, however briefly. I am glad that you are in a place free of hatred, free of prejudice, free of violence, and filled only with love. I'm sure you feel much more at home there. End quote. On December 17, 2011, 39-year-old HIV and gay rights activist and television presenter Jason Vessenar entertained friends at his home in Pretoria West. In 2004 and 2005, he presented the SABC1 television show Sia and Copa Beat It, which highlighted stories of people living with HIV and related problems. At around 3am the next morning, after Jason's friends had left, neighbours heard him cry out for help. Jason, who was openly HIV positive, was later found dead with seven stab wounds to his neck. Speaking at a memorial for Jason held on December the 23rd, Mark Haywood, the deputy chairperson of the South African National AIDS Council and director of Section 27, said that Jason was a man who, quote, loved life and being alive. His beauty was matched by his personal warmth and integrity, end quote. He added, quote, 
What made Jason unusual was that he was able to combine this joy of living with a conscience and a commitment for equality and to fight for other people's dignity. He was able to combine his love of life with a passion for social justice and other people's rights. End quote. Rulof Senegal, aged 67, a former ballet dancer and head of wardrobe at the Joburg Theatre, was found bound and suffocated in his apartment by one of his neighbours on Sunday morning, February 26, 2012. His friends and colleagues say he was a frightened man in the weeks before his death because he was being blackmailed and threatened. Like many gay men not interested in the club scene, he was active on at least four websites where men make friends, chat and look for love or casual sex. He had told friends that a man he had met online had visited and become extremely threatening because he, Rulof, had lied about his age. It appears that he invited his killers into his apartment at Rennie House in Bromfontein on Saturday evening. During the investigation, management and security in the building said the two men had signed the guest book, most likely under aliases, to visit Rulof around 5pm on Saturday, February the 25th. Rulof ordered pizza ahead of the visit by the two men who murdered him. One was known to him, but according to security accounts, was not the same man who had previously threatened him. The same two men are seen on CCTV footage just 30 minutes later, walking out of the apartment complex, taking very little from the flat besides Rulof's laptop and a full black plastic bag. A security guard in his building describes how his killers left eating the pizza that Rulof ordered before they arrived. Now with that out of the way, let's move on to the speculation and theories because these ran rife at the time. Nine gay men, and I'm including Carl in this one, Nine gay men in just over three years in one region of the country. That does seem excessive. And alarming. And dangerous. And fucking terrifying. In fact, it was terrifying. Without looking too deeply into the crimes, it would seem as if a serial killer certainly was involved. I mean, this body count in a relatively insular community was absurd. And the murders operandi looked similar. They were all killed inside their homes. Very little of value was stolen. Many were strangled. A leading US gay publication, The Advocate, speculated, quote, because of the strength needed for strangulation. Police say they haven't ruled out multiple attackers, perhaps a homophobic group, as frightened LGBT folk have come forward with stories of recent violence that may or may not be related. Police warned that gay men who fit the profile shouldn't invite strangers into their home, end quote. A forensic expert, Dr. Mark Wellman, commented at the time, quote, what I find noteworthy is that all of the victims were strangled. Apart from the fact that this represents a thematic connection between the cases, let's also note that to strangle a victim, the killer either has to be considerably stronger or have the victim at some disadvantage. If they are bound, they obviously cannot fight back, but a perpetrator operating alone might find it hard to tie a victim up. So one also would not want to rule out the possibility that the perpetrator had one or more accomplices. End quote. At times, the police believed these killings were the work of a homophobic gang. At other times, they said there was nothing linking them. Then, in November 2011, Police Minister Mteto Nkosanati admitted in Parliament that four victims appeared to be murdered by one perpetrator. Police said they believed a man known as Tony Boy was responsible for four of the men's deaths, but they'd been unable to locate him for nearly a year. At that time, in 2011, the man was still on the loose. One of the best articles during this time was on News24 by Charles Blichnot, titled Murder by Invitation. I encourage you to read it. You'll find the link down in the show notes. 
Before we move on, however, the killings in Gauteng weren't the only murders of gay men taking place in the country at this time. Down in Cape Town, on Sunday, January the 6th, 2013, 50-year-old Graham Collop was found bound and strangled in his flat in Plumstead with no signs of forced entry. Just shy of two months later, on March the 2nd, the body of another Graham, Graham Flax, a 65-year-old retiree, was found in the corridor outside his Seapoint flat, covered with a duvet. He'd apparently gone on a date that weekend with someone he had met on the internet, which is something he was known to do. Residents of the Costa Brava apartment building reportedly heard him scream at around 2.40 on Saturday morning, Let me go! Let me go! He had retired to Cape Town from Johannesburg just one year before. According to investigators, despite the similarities in the cases, there was no connection with the Gauteng murders. But that didn't change the fact that the community was rattled, and some accused police of dragging their heels in the investigation, either due to incompetence or institutional homophobia. This is normally where I go into detail on how these two paths crossed, but there isn't much to go on there. How did they meet? Who the fuck knows? Probably grinder or manhunt or hookups. It's unlikely that a learned, well-travelled university professor and a crystal meth addict from the wrong side of the tracks would have bumped into each other at the theatre, or in a dingy drug den for that matter. They lived in different worlds. But the internet is the great equaliser. You only need to spend an hour in some of the groups on Facebook to realise that the genius and the moron, the rough and the refined, the constructive and the destructive are drawn to each other for whatever reason, love or loathing, despite, or perhaps more likely in spite of, the fact that they really should repel. Then again, if this wasn't a common trait in humans, around long before the advent of the interwebs, we wouldn't have sayings like, opposites attract, or nothing fucks like rough, or don't shag the help. Carl's attraction to the attractive working class straight-ish young man was immediate. Craig, on the other hand, was attracted to Carl's wallet. Oh, shit, sorry. What I meant to say was the stability that Carl offered. So yeah, his wallet. Much of this is speculation, because I never got to meet Carl. But I recognised the type. He was on treatment for bipolar disorder, and according to his work colleagues, would have occasional paranoid episodes. But he had a good heart, and this probably gave him a penchant for wounded birds. As I said, I know the type. If I'm honest, I am the type. Or at least I used to be. People like Carl are the preferred prey of conmen, narcissists and sociopaths, and while I don't know if Craig was diagnosed with either of the latter two, he definitely comes across as an expert in being the former. As I said, I don't know how Craig and Carl met, but it was probably online. Apps such as Grindr and Manhunt are full of lonely middle-aged men looking to fill the void that is their midlife crisis. This makes these apps ideal hunting grounds for attractive, opportunistic younger guys on the prowl for somebody to fund their carefree lifestyles of parties, drugs, and indiscriminate fucking. Men in need of reassurance that they aren't getting old and unwanted are ripe for the picking. But how Craig and Carl met is actually not important. They met, and at some point, Craig moved into Carl's place in Norwood. Whether this was an official 
let's-go-get-your-stuff arrangement or whether Craig just arrived and never left is again unimportant. I don't think even Carl knew exactly where the two stood with each other. What he did know was that whatever they had between them, it was a fucking roller coaster ride. And for somebody who rode the bipolar coaster every single day of his life, this wasn't a good thing. His blog made that crystal clear. And speaking of crystal, throw meth into the mix, and you have a tinderbox just waiting for a match. Also, speaking from experience, when a narcissistic sociopath upends your life and then tries to gaslight you into believing that you are the crazy one, it's no fucking wonder the man was a little paranoid. After all, as the saying goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. Let me digress for a moment. I did say that I get into the rehab doesn't work for everybody thing, and here it is. As some of you may know, I am a staunch advocate of the harm reduction method of dependency treatment. I believe that the abstinence-only approach is flawed, and the 12 steps method, which focuses on the addict being powerless, is about as successful as getting clean on your own. In fact, some studies have found that the success rate of the 12 steps program is in the region of 5-10%, a claim that Alcoholics Anonymous and its spawn, like Narcotics Anonymous, try vehemently to deny or cover up. Also, by drilling it into someone that they are powerless to their addiction and that they will forever be in recovery doesn't do much to encourage a person who has probably been told over and over that they are a disappointment and a failure and an embarrassment to the family to regain control. It's easier to just fucking relapse and be done with it. Maybe this time I'll die and I won't be the blight on the world that society says I am. Harm reduction, on the other hand, acknowledges that dependency is a medical condition. It even has a name, Substance Use Disorder, or SUD. And it encourages the SUD sufferer to retake the control. It promotes the belief that they are responsible for their own recovery, and as such, they get to decide the form such control takes, whether that is complete abstinence, responsible use, or something in between. That said, living with someone who is yet to take back their control can leave loved ones distressed, filled with uncertainty and fear, as they watch the person that they love spiral into dependency and chaos. Karl Mishka was a successful academic, who obviously thrived in a controlled, ordered world. He was a good-hearted, conservative Afrikaans man. The introduction into his life of the much younger Craig Thomas, with all his baggage, clearly caused Carl distress and confusion. But he was in love. You've heard these words before, but let's listen to them again. The affair left me more confused than ever before. I tried throughout to do the right thing, the moral thing, but this did not seem to be enough. We know that Carl a middle-aged gay man was a cash cow for Craig, a straight guy with substance use disorder. What we don't know was how forceful Carl was in getting Craig into a rehab facility. Did he threaten to cut Craig off financially if he didn't go in? Did he threaten to have Craig arrested for things going missing from his home? Either of those scenarios would have been a powerful motivator, but certainly not a recipe for success. There is no question that rehab works for some, but it must be your own choice to make the change, 
being forced, being threatened with homelessness or poverty unless you submit to treatment almost always ends in failure. This is not me blaming the victim. I blame the system. I have a whole soapbox speech on this topic that I gladly deliver to anybody willing to listen. But this is neither the time nor the place. Suffice to say that I have witnessed firsthand in my own home how destructive substance dependency can be, how it breeds irresponsible behavior, and how SUD can consume the person entirely. Meth is particularly heinous. It causes structural damage to the brain and exacerbates pre-existing mental illness. Also, due to the stigma attached to substance use disorder and derogatory or destructive language like addict, junkie, abuser, or embarrassment, SUD sufferers will repeatedly lie about their intentions to get clean and sober, another term considered destructive these days, because that is what will keep a roof over their heads and money in their pockets to appease their dragon. Keeping their dependency catered to is their priority, and they will tell you whatever the fuck they need to, whatever the fuck you want to hear to get you off their back. Many people spiral in and out of addiction without resorting to violence or homicide or even theft, however. My best friend was a heroin addict, but he acknowledged his dependency, held down a steady job, and structured his life and his finances around the cost of keeping his dragon fed. He was a functional drug addict, as they were calling it back in those days. When he died of a heroin overdose in 2011, he had a full-time job in the finance department of a leading hotel in Johannesburg. He had a flat of his own, full of furniture and appliances, and a brand new Kia Soul in his parking bay. I also don't believe that his overdose was accidental, or even intentional. I believe he was murdered, but his death was never investigated as such, because he was just another junkie. But that is another story for another time. I'm not ready to share that one yet. Getting back to meth, it changes the structure and causes chemical imbalances in the brain. Among many scary things about methamphetamine, the scariest might be the way it makes users violently crazy. This is referred to as crystal psychosis. The number of people murdered by someone in a meth rage is unknown, but there is no doubt, based on my personal experience with crystal psychosis in my own home, that the combination of paranoia and hyperarousal can and does occasionally add up to violence. Whether that was a factor here is also unknown. I have my own personal opinions on that. But let's get into what actually happened that night, and we can unpack it afterwards, and you can decide for yourself if you agree with me. So, as mentioned, I'm not entirely sure if Craig was living with Carl in April 2013. According to Craig, Carl was paying his rehab bills, but when Craig mentioned to Carl that he wanted to end their relationship because he, Craig, and his estranged wife, who happened to be in the same rehab center as he was, had decided to try and save their marriage, Carl said that he would no longer be paying for Craig's treatment. Just going on what he said. When this happened is also unclear. It could have been days, weeks, or months before, but in mid-April, Craig relapsed. I can't tell you if this was his first post-release relapse, or if this was just the latest in a string of them, but I suspect that this had happened before, and that Craig was not living with Carl, but would still visit. 
Carl allowed the visits because of his affection for Craig. But affection or not, Carl put a padlock on his wallet. Be that as it may, on Friday, April the 12th, while at a friend's house for this particular bender, Craig met Jacques de Blanche, and the two men headed off. As the weekend progressed, they continued to party together. However, they began to run low on drugs, and, being without money, began devising ways to replenish their stocks. Craig mentioned that he had access to sellable items, which could help resolve their cash flow problem, and keep the drugs flowing in turn. But it required teamwork, because the owner of said sellable items would be at home, and most certainly would take issue with items from his home being pilfered. Meanwhile, in Norwood, Carl was having a quiet Sunday evening. He had spent the day posting to his blog and his Google Plus profile, and working on lesson plans for the upcoming week's classes. And he decided to round off the day in front of the TV, watching pay TV channel Mnet's Sunday night premiere, Safe House, an action movie starring Ryan Reynolds and Denzel Washington, set and filmed almost entirely in Cape Town. He, like many South Africans, was probably noticing the many, many glaring inaccuracies riddled throughout the film. Hey, I'm not gonna lie, I enjoyed the movie immensely. It stars Ryan Reynolds, and I'd watch him open an envelope, preferably naked, but I'm not fussy. However, Greenpoint Stadium and Cape Town Station are a good two and a half kilometers apart. That shit had me throwing popcorn at the screen. Artistic license should have its limits. But, again, I digress. Back to the story. Suddenly, the intercom buzzed, startling Carl. Wondering who could possibly be at the front gate at this time on a Sunday night, he paused the movie and went to check. When he heard Craig's voice, he pressed the button to let Craig in, unaware that Craig wasn't alone. And then he unlocked the front door. However, when Craig walked into the house, Carl instantly noticed that Craig was high. He was also less than thrilled by the fact that he had brought a stranger with him. This is where shit gets murky, because as with the Sizzlers massacre, we have the two conflicting stories of the perpetrators, and then the truth, which died with the victim. Because although Carl didn't know it yet, that was exactly what he was about to become. Craig claimed that Carl went to bed. This isn't outside the realm of possibility. Carl had probably dealt with enough of Craig's comedowns to know that there would be no reasoning with him in the state he was in at that moment in time. Also, the stranger made him uncomfortable, but he knew better than to get into a row with Craig when he was high. Once Carl had left him alone, Craig would later testify. He made coffee, and the two men sat at the kitchen table discussing their plan. Initially, Craig had just wanted to rob the place, but Jacques said that they had to take him out. Quote unquote. Craig concurred and said that there was a dumbbell in the lounge that they could use. They would just have to remove the weights from the bar to make it wieldier. Jacques, on the other hand, claimed that he had no prior knowledge of Craig's intention to murder Carl. According to him, shortly after they arrived, Craig and Carl got into an argument while he sat in the lounge. Carl then stormed up the passage to his bedroom. This enraged Craig, who grabbed the dumbbell, swiftly removed the weights, and chased after Carl into the bedroom. Jacques raced after him and froze in the doorway in horror. 
When he saw Craig bring the bar down on Carl's head, he yelled out, Craig, stop! This was the final blow, Jacques said, Craig inflicted on Carl. With Carl lying face down and motionless in his bed, his blood soaking into the bedclothes, Craig tossed a duvet over his body and knocked a pillow down to cover his head. Then he and Jacques worked their way through the immaculate home, collecting various electronic items. When Craig removed clothes from Carl's wardrobe and raided the contents of his wallet, he said he could hear the sounds of gurgling coming from Carl as his life slowly slipped away. Eventually, the two younger men loaded the stolen items into Carl's car and drove away, leaving the horrific scene ready for Pindy to discover the next morning. With the means once more to continue their party, Craig and Jacques turned their ill-gotten gains into cash, most likely at an all-night pawn shop in four ways, often frequented by drug users, and embarked on a 24-hour drug-fueled spending spree that took them from Johannesburg to Clarksdorp and then Bloemfontein. On their way, they stopped in at casinos for a bit of gambling and visited various dealers before finally booking into a Formula One, a cheap and no thrills and more importantly no questions asked hotel, where they engaged the services of prostitutes and continued their drug binge. When the drug sash once again began to run dry, they decided to part company, but not before they had sold Carl's car to scrap metal dealers for the princely sum of 6,000 rand. With the final transaction complete, Jacques claims to bid Craig a farewell with the words, I hope I never see you again. I have no idea if they split the money. Monday, April 15th, 2013, was a clear day where the temperature would reach a wonderfully comfortable 25 degrees Celsius. In the leafy suburb of Norwood, terror and panic gripped the quiet community as police activity flooded the streets, shattering the usual calm in front of Carl's home once Pindy had been able to regain her composure enough to make the call and report the crime. Maybe the people of Norwood overreacted a bit at the police activity. Although this is a quiet upper-middle-class suburb in Johannesburg, the suburb had already experienced a cascade of death and violence a couple of decades before, at the hands of a cop, no less. Not going to go into it here, but if you're interested in learning more about the Norwood serial killer who terrorized the suburb in the early 1990s, I recommend getting your hands on Janine Lazarus's book, Bait, to Catch a Killer, as she was instrumental in his capture. Or you can check out episode 10 of the podcast Profiler on your podcast app of choice. There are links in the show notes. I'm sure long-standing Norwood residents, of which there are many, it's that kind of neighbourhood, must have had flashbacks to that terrifying period, when on that Monday morning in 2013, they learned that the law professor had been murdered in his bed. Meanwhile, police quickly closed in on their suspects. The day after Craig and Jacques went their separate ways, on April the 18th, Craig asked a friend to take him to Emerentia, to visit his daughter who was living with his parents-in-law. As they pulled into a service station in Kempton Park, police descended, and Craig was arrested. He was found wearing clothes taken from Carl's home. The next day, the two scrap metal dealers, Gary Zaro and Tim Cook, who had bought and were in the process of dismantling Carl's car, were also taken into custody. The final arrest, that of Jacques Terreblanche, followed on April the 20th. 
In early May 2013, Gary was granted bail, and the bail hearing for the other three men was held later that month. Tim would also be granted bail, but Craig and Jacques' bail applications were opposed by the prosecutor and subsequently denied, but not without a good dollop of drama. The bail hearing for Craig and Jacques was delayed six times between April and June 2013 for various reasons, and when the matter finally did go ahead, the magistrate, Paul Duplessis, described the state's affidavit as too weak, quote-unquote, for the bail application to be argued properly, because it didn't contain the correct information. Just some of the problems he pointed out were that although the two men were charged with murder, there was no information in the document actually linking the men with the killing. And that the affidavit stated that the two men stole the victim's car, but they weren't charged with robbery or theft. Magistrate Duplessis ordered that at Craig and Jacques' next appearance, both the investigating officer and the arresting officer should appear before the court and at least one of them should explain the case. There was also talk of Craig changing his story, but whether or not he submitted a revised statement at that time is uncertain. However, before the case even got to that stage, Craig asked to be separated from Jacques because he didn't feel safe sharing a cell with him, after Jacques threatened him both verbally and physically. The request was granted when Craig's lawyer, Tabang Gianni, told the court that his client was unwilling to even speak to him in front of Jacques. I have little doubt that Carl's family felt the sky fall down on their heads when they heard that he was found murdered in his home. Although South Africa is regarded as a dangerous place to live, Carl's white middle-classness protected him from a lot of the danger. He had a stable job and he lived in a pleasant suburb. He had a decent income and his own transport. He was healthy, safe, secure, and middle-aged. He was a contributing member of society and certainly led a low-risk lifestyle. The year that followed must have been excruciating, with both Craig and Jacques professing their innocence, as investigators tried to build their case against the two killers. The murder charges against Gary and Tim were dropped, and their trial, for being in possession of the stolen vehicle, was separated from the case against Craig and Jacques. Sadly, Gary and Tim's case wasn't deemed interesting enough for the media to follow, and I've been unable to uncover the outcome. However, almost a year later, Craig did indeed change his tune, and I'm sure Carl's family heaved a sigh of relief when he entered into a plea deal with the prosecution, which saw him confess to the murder and robbery charges and agreed to testify against Jacques. During his hearing, Craig detailed his version of events and, despite a grueling cross-examination from Jacques' lawyer, Jacques Oersthuizen, his version stood up to the questioning. In the end, Craig would be sentenced to 20 years behind bars for the murder and an additional 12 years for robbery to be served concurrently. As far as I can establish, Craig Robert Thomas is serving out his sentence at Grunpunt Correctional Centre in the small free state town of Denaysville on the banks of the Vaal River. By comparison, Jacques' trial was an absolute fucking train wreck. It had been almost two years from the day that Carl Mishka was found in a pool of blood, bludgeoned to death in his bed. Carl's former lover, Craig Robert Thomas, 
had already confessed to helping plan and execute the killing. In cahoots with Jacques Terreblanche. And, at long last, it was Jacques' turn for his day in court. We are almost at the end of our tale, but the fact that our story actually has an ending at all, irrespective of whether you find that ending satisfactory or not, is a fucking miracle. Remember the shit show that was the bail hearing? <laughs> well, fuck-ups seem to be a trend. Jacques' trial was set to begin on February the 3rd, 2015, but had to be postponed because nobody bothered to transport the state's star witness, Craig Thomas, the 60 kilometers from Grimpen Prison to the Palm Ridge Magistrates Court in Katlehong, south of Johannesburg, where the South Gauteng High Court was sitting for this trial. When asked what happened, state advocate Narisha Naidu said that she was having trouble cooperating with the South African Police Service because an official had neglected to make the necessary arrangements with prison officials. The following day, however, everybody was where they needed to be and the trial finally got underway. Now, Craig and Jacques' stories differed greatly, as I alluded to earlier, but I deliberately kept details of Craig's testimony vague so that we could hear the stories side by side and decide which is more plausible. Let's start by revisiting the established facts that contributed to the events of that night, Sunday, April the 14th, 2013, without any of my dalliances with dramatic license. We know that Craig and Carl had at one time been in a relationship, that Carl had been supporting Craig financially, and that Craig had lived in Carl's home, so he was aware of what was in the house and where items of value were kept. We know that Carl knew at least one of his assailants, as there was no sign of forced entry, so he must have willingly granted them entry prior to being attacked. We know that Carl was found in his bed, naked and face down in a pool of blood. Some reports claimed that he'd been bound, which would have made the circumstances of his murder more similar to the other Gauteng gay murder cases, but this contradicted Craig's testimony in court. We know that he was found under a duvet and that his head had been covered with a pillow. And we know that Carl's assailants stole items from the house and used Carl's car as a getaway vehicle. This car was subsequently sold for scrap, which is where it was recovered in the process of being dismantled. Now, before we get into the accused's conflicting versions of events, I want to discuss the covering of the bodies and or faces. This was a common thread in the Gauteng gay murders and why most laypersons believed that this was the signature of a serial killer. Rulof Senekal had a blue and white shirt placed over his head. Barney van Heeren's face was covered by a jacket. Oscar O'Hara's by a tea towel. Carl's by a pillow. If you're a genuine true crime fan, you'll know that this is actually not all that rare. It's called undoing. It's a defense mechanism in which a person tries to cancel out or remove any unhealthy, destructive, or otherwise threatening thought or action by engaging in contrary behavior. It is one of several defense mechanisms proposed by Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, who, despite all his freaky, tell me about your master, Oedipus complex crap, may have been onto something. The term undoing first appeared in literature when the FBI started to study and classify offender behavior systematically in the 1970s. From these studies, it emerged that if forms of undoing behavior 
were present at a crime scene, the most likely conclusions were A. There was a close association between the offender and the victim. Or B. The victim represented a person of importance to the offender. And this brings us back to the events of that night. Craig had shared a bed with Carl. There had to have been some level of affection there. This places Craig squarely into Group A, close association between victim and offender. Now let's move on to comparing the accounts. Let's work through how Craig and Jacques each claimed things played out and assess their stories bit by bit. Craig said that he and Jacques had earlier discussed the idea of gaining access to Carl's house and stealing items that they could then sell for drugs, but that Jacques had said that they would have to take him out, quote-unquote. Him, of course, being Carl. None of the reports I have found reveal why Jacques would have suggested escalating the robbery to murder. But I assume Jacques won Craig over by reminding Craig that Carl would be able to identify them as the thieves. Jacques, on the other hand, claimed he had no idea Craig was planning on murdering Carl and that when things got violent, it took him by surprise. Craig said that Carl let them in and went to bed. Craig then made coffee and he and Jacques sat around the kitchen table discussing the most effective weapon to use. They agreed that a wheel spanner wouldn't be heavy enough, but Craig suggested taking the weights off a dumbbell in the lounge and using the bar, and they settled on that as their weapon. Jacques testified that Craig and Carl had a muffled argument in the bedroom, but then he changed his story and said that the argument had been a full-on screaming match in the lounge, and when Carl stormed off to the bedroom saying he was going to bed, Craig grabbed the dumbbell, removed the weights, and chased after him. He claimed to have sat in the lounge while the argument continued in the bedroom and only ran out the passage when he heard Craig attack Carl. When he got to the room, he shouted at Craig to stop, which Craig duly did. The two men blamed each other for the murder. Craig claimed that Carl was asleep when he was beaten by Jacques, but Jacques' story implies that Carl was awake and in the middle of an argument when he was attacked by Craig. Where the two men agree is that once the assault had been carried out, they then began ransacking the place, loading the items into Carl's car and left. They also concur on what they did after leaving Carl's place. A few news reports imply that they took the murder weapon with them and disposed of it in Clarkstorp. Initially, Jacques agreed to point out its location, but then, on the advice of his lawyer, walked this back and the murder weapon was never recovered. Right. Now let's pick these accounts apart. Firstly, as mentioned back in chapter 7, Carl probably had experience with Craig on a crystal come down and would have known that in the state he was in, there would be no reasoning with him. This makes it more plausible that he would have gone to bed. And in the time it took Craig and Jacques to finish their coffee, Carl could have, and probably did, fall asleep. This would also explain why he was naked. It is highly improbable that the two men, eager to resume their drug binge, would have taken the time to undress their victim and lay him face down in the bed. It actually would have been easier to just load the body into the boot of the car and dispose of it elsewhere. As for the murder weapon, it is more likely that Craig removed the weights from the dumbbell beforehand. As far as I know, it is impossible to remove weight discs in one fluid motion while in a rage and eager to pursue the person who pissed you off. 
It takes time to unscrew the clamps on either side and slide the discs off, probably at least 30 seconds, which is a veritable lifetime. It's three times as long as the length of time we're taught as kids to take to calm down before reacting. Remember, count to ten. Craig's rage would have dissipated long before the weights had come off. And with that, we arrive at the question of who actually bludgeoned Carl. Jacques or Craig? I'm leaning towards Jacques. He had no connection to Carl. There was no bond there. It's a lot easier to kill a stranger than someone you care about. The moral dilemma is a much lower hurdle to vault if you don't know the person. This will also explain why Craig covered Carl with the duvet. Seeing what Jacques had done would have been a lot to take in, and it would have been his way of distancing himself from what he had become a part of. The same thing with covering the face. He couldn't bear to look at Carl, knowing that he'd been partly responsible for what had happened to him. A big deal was made about the fact that in court, when Craig spoke of raiding Carl's wallet and listening to the gurgling sounds coming from beneath the duvet, he showed no emotion. Unlike Trudy Clemens, Carl's sister, seated in the gallery, who buried her face in her hands and sobbed throughout that part of the testimony. However, this is actually not all that surprising. It's another defense mechanism. The only way Craig's mind knew to protect itself from that memory was to anesthetize Craig to that memory. He wasn't cold and heartless. He was numb. It wasn't that he didn't care, but rather that he cared so much that experiencing the emotions that went with that memory would have driven him completely fucking batshit crazy. The mind has some creative ways of swaddling itself in bubble wrap. In court, Craig's story fared far better under scrutiny than Jacques did. Craig was cross-examined by Jacques's lawyer, and advocate Oersthausen found it difficult to poke holes in Craig's story. Jacques, however, was solidly grilled by state advocate Naidu, and he kept changing his story as he went along. This was not lost on her, and it's really a good sign. Jacques claimed that he would have done anything to prevent the murder, but, Naidu pointed out, he made no effort to do exactly that when he had every opportunity to do so. Nor did he check on Carl to see how badly injured he was. Jacques also made no effort to contact emergency services and get an ambulance to the house either. When asked why his timeline of events changed twice during the questioning, he tried to blame it on the effects of crystal meth, claiming that he, quote, wasn't thinking straight, end quote, and that the meth altered his perception. Now, as somebody who isn't unfamiliar with the effects of certain illicit substances, I can assure you that the easiest way to kill someone's buzz, especially on an upper like meth, would be to scare the crap out of them. Like, I don't know, killing somebody in front of them. Okay, maybe not so much on downers, like heroin. Heroin zongs you out and you aren't necessarily aware of your surroundings. But crystal meth heightens all your senses. Yes, crystal meth does alter your perception. You are hyper aware. You notice everything. Witness a murder while high and I guarantee you, your trip is fucked. Anyway, finally, Naidu put it to Jacques, quote, you assaulted the deceased and you intended for him to die. You needed to get out and get on the run, end quote. Jacques denied this. When Judge Geraldine Borches 
asked him why he just sat in the lounge after Carl announced that he was going to bed and Craig had gone after him instead of just starting to gather items to steal, as had been the plan. Jacques said that he had been raised that guests don't wander around a house unaccompanied, to which the judge replied, But you weren't a guest there. An excellent point. A guest could become a burglar. But you would be hard-pressed to find an instance where a burglar becomes a guest. I would venture that it has never happened in the history of mankind, but there's always going to be some smart-ass on the interwebs who will make it their mission in life to find that one instance. So, smart-asses of the world, go forth and do your worst. Find me that one instance and hit me up on Discord. You know where the links are by now. Repeatedly, through his testimony, Naidu accused Jacques of tailoring his evidence to the cross-examination. While Craig had held up well, Jacques came off as an unreliable witness, and, to the people in the gallery at least, guilty as fuck. Finally, the nightmare ended on February the 12th, 2015, where, like Craig, Jacques was sentenced to life imprisonment, or 20 years for the murder, plus an additional 15 years for robbery with aggravating circumstances. Because he got life, the sentences would run concurrently. The police never linked this case to any of the other murders. Carl Mishka may not have been in the first flush of youth like the boys killed at Sizzlers, but at 47, he was by no means on his last legs. The man was only two years older than I am now when he was murdered violently. I hope that Craig's story is the more accurate one, that Carl was asleep, that he didn't wake up, that Jacques was the one who did the bludgeoning. I can only hope that the last thing Carl saw wasn't Craig, the man he loved, standing over him, weapon in hand, ready to beat him to death for a bit of drug money. I really want to believe that there is good in people, and that this is not the ending that Craig Thomas wanted either. But I think my checkered past, where I have witnessed firsthand and on a regular basis how truly dark the human heart can get, has jaded me. Even if this wasn't the outcome Craig wanted, it's the one that his actions brought about. SUD does not excuse murder. If my theory is correct and Jacques bludgeoned the professor, Craig is still culpable. He knew what the plan was going in and he could have stopped it at any time. Carl did his best to help Craig in the only way he knew how, by paying for him to go to traditional rehab. As I said earlier, on the topic of all the younger relationship dynamics. We don't know what goes on behind closed doors, and the same thing applies to dealing with a substance-dependent partner. This story isn't really about Craig's substance dependency, but that will be the takeaway for most people. Drugs made a drug addict kill his lover for drug money. And on the surface, that is exactly how it seems. But if you look deeper, if you take a good, hard look at society's attitude to drugs, and those dependent on them, you will see that the system is broken. It failed SUD sufferers a long time ago, but more and more, it is failing their loved ones too. This is a story about how a toxic relationship ended the life of a truly innocent victim. I wonder who you think I'm referring to here. 
Karl Mishka and his Beth-dependent lover, or the two relative strangers who were so focused on chasing the buzz that neither of them took a step back and thought, what the fuck am I doing? In a way, Karl Mishka was a bit player in the fractured life of Craig Thomas. Karl tried to do the right thing, but because of the baggage Craig Thomas carried with him, Craig turned to the one thing that numbed the pain, until that which numbed the pain caused indescribable pain to so, so many. Carl tried, but unless Craig had been willing to slay his dragon, nothing Carl could have done would have ever been enough. In court, Craig confessed that he used his relationship with Carl to gain entry to his home that night, and he came with bad intent. This is a cautionary tale, no question about it, but not in the way that most people would choose to see it. This is a cautionary tale of a different colour. We need to rethink the way we deal with substance dependency and how we treat people with SUD. Maybe if harm reduction was the official policy of this country as it is in Portugal, which in the 22 years since they decriminalised drugs has turned substance dependency from a criminal justice and social welfare problem into a health problem, Craig may have gotten the treatment he actually needed. Instead, we are left with Carl's haunting words, written in the description of an album on his Flickr account, about six months before his death. A very, very strange time, in November and December 2012, when I had to deal with insanity and imbalance brought into my life by addict, paramedic and child, Craig Robert Thomas. Thank you for coming along on our journey into the bludgeoning of Professor Karl Mishka. This case got very personal for me. I identified with the victim in a big way. I mean, come on. A gay, middle-aged man with bipolar getting taken advantage of and gaslit by the addict he loves? Je suis Karl Mishka. I was just lucky enough to get out before anyone died. I mentioned this at the start, but... If you or someone you love is struggling with substance dependency, do reach out to me on Discord or contact the Substance Abuse Helpline. The contact details are down in the show notes. Also, as this story lays out, toxic relationships can be just as destructive as substance dependency and you may not even realise how much it is breaking you down. Remember that it is okay to ask for help. There is no shame in it. Again, There are tons of helplines listed in the show notes, or you can get in touch with me and I will help point you in the right direction. I want to thank Jan Benz, Marius Benz, and Richard Thompson for lending their voice talents to the telling of this story, and to Karin Lotta for the story to tell. To be honest, I haven't yet settled on exactly which case I want to cover next, but whichever it is, one thing I can guarantee is that it will definitely qualify as a crime most queer. (laughs) 